Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with the substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we are bringing you six new episodes. In late 2022, Tim Sobers, who leads our workforce development team, hosted a six-month skill development series for peer recovery support specialists. The training series provided recurring opportunities for peer recovery support specialists from across the country to build foundational skills that are necessary for effective peer support service provision. The series was so well attended and in demand that we also offered it in early 2023. In this podcast series, Tim sits down to have a conversation with each of our facilitators to have a deeper discussion with them about their presentation and what it means for the field. In this final episode of the series, Tim speaks with Jesse Davis about understanding and supporting mental health experiences. They are an experienced program coordinator with a demonstrated history of working in the peer support, mental health, and substance use recovery fields. Jesse is known for work surrounding youth and young adult peer support training, technical assistance, and leadership. Currently working at the South Southwest Mental Health Technology Transfer Center, Jesse works to provide support, technical assistance, and training to the peer workforce throughout the five states and all tribal communities within Region 6. They have spent much of their career focused on youth and young adult peer support and are currently the president of the National Association of Peer Supporters. Without further ado, let's get talking. Hi, Jesse. It's so good to have the chance to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I was really excited to have you as a part of the skill development series, uh, specifically focusing on the mental health aspect, just because I know and appreciate kind of how you talk about it and your approach. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about how you kind of put that training together, specifically focusing on you know supporting people navigating mental health experiences. Yeah. So in thinking about how I put that training together, I was really coming at the question of, uh, or the goal of understanding mental health experiences from my journey as a early peer supporter of what did I need to know and what did I not know? And how did I come to learn that information and relating it to the things that uh, helped me as I was learning this information and relating it to my own journey? I started in the peer support world on the substance use side, which I don't hide, but people seem to be surprised by. Uh, and so I uh, was able to bring the mental health experiences into the conversation from that lens. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about that sort of siloing? Because that was kind of one of the main reasons that I wanted the mental health piece to be a part of the skill development series is because people get so focused on like, well, I'm a substance use peer specialist, or I'm a mental health peer specialist, and therefore I can't do anything to support somebody struggling with the other or navigating the other thing. I guess I don't know my question is, can you like, what has your experience been with that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I took my very first peer support training while I was going to school to be a chemical dependency counselor uh, in Texas, LCDC. And at the time, that was the only 
credential that I knew of that would be able to use my personal experience to support other people. And I was very entrenched in the 12-step world. I was very entrenched in substance use recovery. And I was coming at this from that lens. And when I took my very first peer support training, it was actually through RI International, which at the time was just called Recovery Innovations. And they have an integrated model where they don't separate substance use from mental health and mental health from substance use. It is all just together. And when I went through that training, I had a really hard time at first with, wait, what do you mean that people who have never had a problem with alcohol can support people who have problems with alcohol and are trying to stay sober? Um, Because that was a huge conversation in the 12-step rooms that I was in. And even I at the time was very specific. And if somebody hasn't had the experience of trying to stay sober in a similar way that I've had this experience for myself, I wouldn't want to be supported by them. And every time I had been supported by somebody without similar experience, it hadn't landed right. It didn't feel appropriate. And so I was very confused. And when I went through this uh, training, they talked about how substance use disorder is technically in the DSM with all of the other mental health challenges. And it is technically one of them. And a lot of times the misunderstandings are due to stigma of not really listening to the people who are dealing with these challenges or who are having a hard time staying sober or uh, utilizing drugs and alcohol in a way that's not harmful for their lives. And there are so many other things that they said that I would do a disservice of trying to repeat. And this was 10 years ago. Uh, So uh, it's been quite a while. But having this conversation where we were able to look at it from a different perspective was really, really helpful for me then. And I came out of that training having a better understanding of how people can support others from different walks of life that they hadn't been through, but from a place of mutuality. And then I got into the peer support world, and in Texas, it was all silos. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get this awesome training that teaches me about integrating peer support uh, or mental health and substance use within peer support. And then I get into the peer support world, and there's mental health certification, and there's substance use certification. And I could only get reciprocity for the mental health one, meaning the mental health side was the only one that recognized the training I had gone through. And I had to re-go through the substance use training. And I was very confused, and it's continued throughout my peer support career that some places are integrated and some places are separated. And I don't quite understand always why it's separated in some places or why it's integrated in others, Um, but it does lend to a separation of services and sometimes duplication of services uh, where the same thing is offered, just you have two different people with two different credentials doing the same thing. And sometimes it's the same people going to the same groups, but with two different people. But also sometimes that uh, specificity is necessary. And so there's pros and cons to both having integrated and separated uh, approaches, but it can lead to the people receiving services or people utilizing services uh, feeling um either really welcomed or really 
separated. And it is interesting to have those conversations with people who do utilize services to see how it impacts them in their lives. Mm-hmm. And how do you, you know, something that I see, and I'm really interested to hear kind of your thoughts on like how we maybe push through some of this, but um, so I, I see something happening very regularly when people are just in mental health spaces or just in substance use spaces. And it's that they think that in order to provide services to somebody who is, you know, has the lived experience that they don't have, they need to learn like the clinical approach to things. I really see a strong focus on that, particularly in the substance use side, this idea that in order to be able to connect with somebody having mental health challenges, I need to understand all of the clinical diagnoses. I need to know how to connect somebody to therapy. I need to know more about the psychopharmacology. And those things really have no relevance to peer support. And so I'm interested, you know, your thoughts, Jesse, on how we like move away from that or how we avoid falling into the trap of thinking that understanding things through the clinical lens is the best approach for us to bridge the gaps between the two siloed services. Yeah, so I I feel like a lot of that comes from fear and stigma based in fear. I know that whenever I have conversations with people about supporting mental health challenges from the substance use side specifically, schizophrenia always comes up. Always. Or people hearing and seeing things that others don't comes up. Or suicidality comes up. And these are always coming up in a reference to fear of, but what if something big happens? And I'm not even going to say what if something bad happens, but what if something big happens? And because people haven't been through that specific instance, like they may have with a drug overdose or alcohol blacking out or something else, they've tend to feel inadequate and uh, fear of those situations. And so what I tend to do to try and combat this is provide as much information as I can from a non-clinical perspective. And if people aren't getting it, sometimes I'll back it up with clinical thoughts or clinical data, right? But I want to really impart the understanding that people who hear and see things that others don't, no matter what the situation is, that's real for them. And it's not something that is absolutely terrible unless that person says it is. And then if they say it's really not good, then we support them as if it's really not good. And if it's just something they experience, then we just say, okay, cool. And we integrate that into the conversation as appropriate. But if they don't want to integrate it in the conversation, okay. So they're looking over my shoulder or they look off into the distance at something that they see, but I don't. If they're not bothered by it, I'm not bothered by it. Uh, And really having to work with people to understand that just because there's something happening that I don't understand doesn't mean it's bad, doesn't mean it's a crisis, doesn't mean that I have to get clinical support or help to deal with the situation because it might not even be a situation. It just is and refocusing people back on, okay, I'm going to be here with the person I'm supporting as they want me to be here and how they're asking for me to be there and to support them. So with peer support, if it's focused on, hey, I want to work on uh, something, you know, using more clinical language like triggers or uh, trying to decrease something or whatever we want to say, cool, I'll support you with that. I'm probably going to use more plain language and 
that is where I think we really have the opportunity to make change is continually reinforcing plain language and not not relying on clinical understandings of our experiences. I could probably say a lot more, but I think you have questions. <laughs> no, no, I completely agree. That's something that I'm, you know, constantly pushing back on of like, why, why are you using the language that you're using? Why are you using the frameworks that you're using to talk about these experiences and others' experiences when we're meant to be, you know, very intentionally a non-clinical service? Why are you using these clinical frameworks to talk about this or to do your job? Um, and I always, and I'm kind of just questioning, like, how did you get, to the understanding that this is what your job's supposed to look like. Um, but I think it's so funny that you mentioned that, you know, I guess not funny, but um, kind of ironic for me when you talk about like people looking at somebody hearing voices or seeing visions from a place of fear. I always think the opposite where I'm like somebody overdosing is way scarier than, than sitting in the same room as somebody who is seeing something I can't for me. And as somebody who you know, has blocked out many, many times, like that was very common. So I'm like, that's not scary at all. <laughs> but, but it's just interesting to see like how people, uh, you know, are scared of some things, but not others and where that, that really comes from. But something you talked a lot about in the presentation in the skill development space was the idea of self-diagnosis um, and really exploring, you know, on your own, how are you making meaning of your own experiences? And I would love to kind of hear you talk just a little bit about why that's important and kind of where that fits into the peer support paradigm. Yeah, and I think that that is really informed by my lived experience as most of this presentation is, um, or most of the presentation we're talking about. But again, with self-diagnosis, I was somebody who grew up never being believed I was never the authority on my own life, and even when I was going to therapists as as a little kid all through growing up, when the therapist that I was talking to only had me talk about her cats and nothing but her cats, and we were meeting in the living room of her apartment, and it was not a good fit, I was not believed. At that point, I knew I wasn't going to get out of therapy. I was just going to keep going. But And I even told my parents, like, hey, this isn't working. Let's find me a different one. Like, understanding that I wasn't going to just get out of it. Let's find me a different one. This one isn't working. And it still took months before we switched therapists. And they finally believed me that something wasn't right. and. You know, whether it is a person in authority or friends or, you know, just life with, a you know, living as a person assigned female at birth, you know, there is so much that I was not believed in. And so going through this process of understanding me and understanding what's going on with my body and believing myself has been a journey. And I still am not believed in a lot of different situations and a lot of different spaces. And no matter what it's about, you know, it could be about my mental health, but it could also be about something else. Like, oh, I didn't like this food that was cooked growing up. <laughs> you know, it could be about anything, really. Uh, but I'm still not believed in many different situations. And so when we talk about self-diagnosis, at least for me, that 
is me learning about my own body, looking at, in my own experience with life, looking at what others are describing as their experience with life. If there's a common name for it, great. If there's not a common name for it, let me look at all the different ones and see if there's something that feels like it fits me from my understanding of my experience. And oftentimes when I find a common name that is used to describe what I'm experiencing, I can look up what's helped other people. And when I look up what's helped other people, I can try those things for myself. And that's a way of providing myself this support that I never receive when I'm not believed. And that's a way for me to make meaning of my own life. And that's a way for me to continue to be uh, understood as the expert in my own life. And so I don't ever want to take that away from others. And if we're in this peer support profession and we're supposed to be understanding that the person we're working with is the driver in their car, the person that is the expert of their own lives, then I have to believe them when they say they're going through something. And I have to make sure that I'm not imposing my understanding of myself onto them. And I have to make sure that I'm also not imposing a understanding of a group of clinicians that wrote a book onto them. <laughs> they get to describe their experience. And if it happens to fit the the big book made by a group of clinicians, cool. Maybe that'll help us find a common understanding word better, which sometimes is referred to as a diagnosis. Uh, but other times it may not fit that. And we just work with what you're saying you're experiencing and support you through it. Yeah. And I, I, it was really interesting to see in both presentations, both times you, you um, facilitated the space, the tension in the room, because there were folks who, you know, everybody comes into these spaces and this is like my little soapbox is that everybody who's in peer support comes into these spaces being like, I know the values. I know what they mean in practice. I can do it. And I really believe in self-determination. And then, you know, you were talking about self-diagnosis and, and people in the room were like, that's dangerous. People shouldn't be doing it. How do we know they, they're attention seeking? And there were plenty of other folks who felt like it was a great, you know, pathway to follow. But it's always interesting to see the tension between the values that you're saying that you support as a workforce. And then what you're saying in a space like this, where we're talking about bodily autonomy, self-determination, voice choice and control, you know, making meaning of your own experiences and seeing the workforce saying like, no, I don't agree with that. What was, what was it like to see that? I am continually saddened, but also not surprised when I see tension around this conversation, because it is again, a symptom of co-optation and uh, the clinical experience, putting pressure on the peer support experience to be more clinical um, or to fit within what the clinical training has provided as, quote, safe. Um, and I feel like a lot of peer support communities have drifted closer to being more clinical out of fear. Not fear of the peer supporter necessarily, but fear of the people utilizing services being harmed in some way. And I understand that fear. At some points, I even drifted closer to that clinical understanding uh, 
There are trainings that are focused on clinical understandings and symptoms like mental health first aid. And it's not saying that they're necessarily not right or not okay, but in a peer support profession and workspace, it's not appropriate to bring in that clinical space. Um, And really having to reaffirm with those peer workers, hey, this is where our profession is. And you are probably getting a lot of different pressures from a lot of your coworkers, especially if you're the first and only peer supporter or you're a a peer supporter in a program that was created by clinicians without a true understanding of what peer support is, except one person talking to another, right? Or one person with lived experience working with another person. and really focusing on the fact that, hey, you have these experiences, you're, ex- you're getting these pressures from people around you. Let's continue connecting to peer support spaces so that we can reaffirm that we don't need to be clinical. Let's reaffirm how these values work in our work how they work in our work uh, <laughs> and focus on self-determination is truly self-determination, not self-determination as much as long as I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. I love that. That delineation of like, we're really talking about truly implementing self-determination and not self-determination until I'm uncomfortable. Just like when we talk about multiple pathways, it often becomes multiple pathways to abstinence, but we're meant to be talking about multiple pathways to meaningful living kind of however you interpret that. Um, I something that I think is is really interesting to explore too is kind of even the language like mental health experience. I was, you know, when we talked about the series, I was a little hesitant even to use that language. Um, and I remember coming to you and saying, you know, I don't want this to be a presentation about diagnoses. I don't want this to be. This is what you do when somebody's hearing voices. This is what you do when they they you know they have this cluster of symptoms. And I was not even sure about using the language mental health experiences because I still felt like it was too constricting and too closely aligned with clinical understandings of human experiences, but the broader language was too broad that it would become hard for people to understand what we're talking about. Um, but something that I think is interesting, even within in peer support spaces is like, how do we support people who are experiencing distress or, or just the, you know, the human condition, not viewing it as a mental health experience? How, how can we, how do we make space for that and support people who are maybe just like, I'm just really stressed or this is a really a spiritual, you know, thing that's going on for me, completely divorced from my quote unquote mental health. Um, and I know the peer workforce kind of struggles with that. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how do we create the space and build the skills to do that? I mean, I have to start out with saying those are my favorite peer conversations. Uh, when somebody's just coming to me with whatever's going on, um, I have been working for a long time on a training specifically around youth and young adult peer support. And in that training, we talk about this exact thing um, where when people are coming to us for peer support, no matter what door they came in, mental health services, substance use services, whether we're a peer supporter focused on physical experiences, right? You know, there's maternal uh, mental health, there's uh, postpartum peer supporters, there's all sorts of different peer supporters in the world besides just mental health and substance use. But whatever door this person comes through to utilize our services, whatever they want to talk about is what we're going to talk about. If they want to talk about, and again, this is a training for young people, supporting young people, right? But if they want to talk about how their boyfriend or girlfriend just broke up with them that day, we're going to talk about that. Even if we've been working with them on uh, 
their goal of reducing self-harm. Some people may not think that's connected, but it is absolutely connected in my mind where it is something that is big going on in their lives and they're utilizing something to help them deal with big things and we're working on supporting them through one thing. They want to talk about this other thing, but yeah, sure, let's talk about it. How's that affecting you? How do you want support with that? You going to go have Starbucks after this? I, you know, whatever we want to talk about in that space is what that person is going to, is wanting support with. And as peer supporters, again, we are letting the person we are working with drive their recovery. We, and I, I hate the idea of letting them, right? But they are the ones driving their recovery. They are the ones uh, who are the experts in what's going on. And even if they're not, uh, coming from a, like, I think I need to talk about my uh, partner breaking up with me because it's going to support me and not u- using self-harm to get through this, right? Even if they're just talking about, hey, this this sucks. My day sucks today. I don't like this. It's hard. Great. You're talking to me. We're having a conversation and I'm getting to support you in what's going on with your life right now. And that is the goal of peer support. Supporting somebody with what's going on in their life right now, how they're asking us to support them. At least in my Yeah, no, I love that. That example is something that has been kind of coming up over and over again for me recently and, and with others that I speak to. This idea that like, hey, this sucks and I'm just going to sit in it being bad with you for a little while with no expectation that like you're going to move out of it or things are going to get better or I'm going to fix anything. And I feel like as a workforce, we kind of, have moved away from this idea of like, let's just sit together and, and, you know, be in distress or experience sadness together. And we've really moved into this space of like, we have to build your resiliency skills. We have to do X, Y, Z things so that you are going to feel better and you don't have to experience this again. And that isn't really the point of peer support. Um, right. The point is to be like, this sucks and we're in it together. And I just am appreciative of you kind of naming that in, in a, a conversation like this. Cause I think it's important to not lose sight of, you know, what is peer support supposed to be and what could it be? And I'm so glad we're on the same page as that. With that, I have another like piece that I would add on as well. And I think you'll probably have this on your (laughs) list to get to. Uh, But for me, motivational interviewing is a tool to keep us in that space where I see so many people trained where motivational interviewing is a way to facilitate a conversation. And that's not what I got. When I was trained with motivational interviewing, I was trained of, hey, these are ways to keep the conversation focused on what the person you're supporting wants. And to have the conversation stay out of your own wants, needs, and desires. And to focus on open-ended questions so that the person can continue telling you in their own words rather than closed-ended questions where you are creating the words that they are agreeing or not agreeing to. And I see motivational interviewing used almost as a weapon sometimes in this field as uh, whether peers are allowed to use it or not allowed to use it or how it's supposed to work. And I really am saddened when I come across more and more peers who think that motivational interviewing is a clinical tool to facilitate conversation towards change. 
when in the peer support world, it's a tool to keep us out of the conversation? A very contentious topic. (laughs) I don't agree with you. (laughs) But I think that's what these spaces are for, right? For me, I am someone who's like, that is a clinical tool meant to facilitate change. And peer specialists, peer workers have a different set of skills that we could be using. Like for me, and uh, something I've talked about with some of the other facilitators as well, is just like, why do we need that tool to legitimize our ability to provide effective services? I think MI is a great tool that has its own place in clinical services. But for me, I'm like, I would rather legitimize us by creating our own tools and our own skills and kind of codifying those to the best of our ability uh, within the peer support framework and say, this is what we do that's separate from this clinical framework. Uh, because to me, when I see people using MI, I don't think, and this is no, you know, I don't think it's a knock to the people providing services because it's not really their fault. But the way that MI is presented in peer specialist training and certifications, it, to really be trained in MI properly, it takes, I mean, it's part of like college courses, right? There's a whole like fidelity measure. There's, you know, usually you have to be like recorded on camera and you send it in, you get scored. And that's not happening in peer specialist certification trainings. So people are leaving thinking they know how to do MI, but they haven't actually been trained in the evidence-based practice that is MI using the fidelity tools. And so for me, I think it's a bit of a disservice to to be kind of quote unquote training people in it when you're not really being trained in it. You know, and again, not a knock to the facilitators because I don't think that they're it's not their fault either that they're being given a, a, a certification training that's like do MI and they're not, you know fully trained in MI and how to train in MI, like that's a whole different thing. So I think it's more of a fault of the system. But I do, for me, I'm like, no, there's there's really no place for this here. Maybe some of the skills can can match with some of what we do. But for me, I'm like, I'd rather just do something else, call it something else, so that there's no association to what people know and understand MI to be. And I love that. I would love to have our own separate tools and uh, start moving away. For now, my understanding of MI comes from utilizing the tools and not having it be that clinical space. And so that's why I had talked about MI in the peer support world, uh, which is very different from the clinical world. Uh, And I 100% agree, clinical world uh, motivational interviewing has no place. Um, And what we're trained on is often called MI, even though it's not the true evidence-based practice, as you talked about, which is very important to distinguish. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, I got to stop this conversation before I lose my job. (laughs) (laughs) Because people have a lot of opinions about MI. (laughs) I've been caught in the middle of it too many times. (laughs) But it is interesting. I think it's, it's really reflective of kind of the workforce and how it's growing and particularly like how do you support somebody, you know, navigating quote unquote mental health challenges? Uh, I think, and this was something I saw for the whole skill development series is that people really expected to come in and be told like, this is what you do. Step one is this. Step two is you say that. Step three is you get this question. And then we're going to leave, you know, having learned specifically, this is what, this is how you do it. And so much of this series was more focused on like, how do you as an individual even understand these things? And have you done the personal you know, reflection that's needed to be able to be in a space like this and provide effective services. And that's kind of the base of how you build skills is, you know, uh, which is not 
typically how I've approached things. I am a little bit more being like, here's a tool, here's how you do it. But I've worked with some great folks who have really kind of pushed me to be like, no, you need to talk with people a little bit more about like where their values line up. And I think that that's a really kind of missed piece in skill development. And and even in peer support, I, I not to ramble on and on, but have, you know, contributed to, to a couple of peer specialist uh, certification curricula. And I really like to focus on like, the, this is how you build the skills. This is what the work looks like. And I don't really love doing like the personal introspection because I feel like it gets too close to kind of therapy and what's meant to be a professional skill development space. But I've worked with some great folks who've been like, no, you know, you really need to, to take the time to help people to understand where do you fit into the history, you know, where your val- where your values in alignment with what peer support is and is supposed to be, you really understand what this is. What do you think about how those two things blend together, kind of that personal reflection and the concrete skill development? I, in, in the trainings that I've influenced and in the um, exercises that I've created, I tend to utilize personal introspection as a way to build skill development, where it's not a exercise of, I want you to think of this really deep thing and then share with the group. It's, I want you to think about a time when you experienced something related to what we're talking about. How did you personally want to be supported, whether you got that or not? And how does that relate to how we're supposed to operate as peer supporters in a non-clinical way? And so I don't know that it's necessarily an either or. I think it can be blended. And I think there's also a multitude of learning styles as well, as well, where sometimes if it is a person, they'll really benefit a lot from personal introspection. And sometimes if it's another person, they will be completely closed off to that part of their lives in a professional setting. And they don't want to have that brought up and they don't want that to be uh, the focus of this space. And so one of the things that I'm really careful of when creating exercises surrounding personal introspection to build skills is I don't ever want people to feel like they have to share what they were thinking about or going into from their own lives. I want people to just be able to utilize their experiences, as we do as peer supporters, to then inform growing their skills rather than I'm sharing this in a cathartic way. Yeah, that makes sense. But then also sometimes you just got to practice the skills. <laughs> yes, it's certainly a blend of both. I, I agree with you. Um, something else that you talked about in the skill development series was uh, kind of the, the, not kind of, was the neurodivergence framework. Um, I would love for you to speak on that a little bit. Um, if you're comfortable sharing, like, this is what it is. I know it can be tricky to be like, this is what the framework is defined as. Um, but kind of what that is and what that means. Yeah, I've been using the f- term neurodivergence framework, and I'm not quite sure whether it is officially framework or a neurodivergence paradigm. Um, But there is a creator uh, on Instagram and a few other platforms that has the handle lived experience educator that I've been following quite closely. Uh, Their name is Sunny, and they are somebody that I've learned a lot from. So anybody listening to this, please go reference them because they're where I've gotten most of this information from. Uh, But the neurodivergence framework or paradigm is really more so focused on the fact that we all just have different brains. 
They're not better or worse than anybody else's brain. It's just a brain. We all have experiences. It's not better or worse than anybody else's experiences internally. They're just internal experiences. And sometimes people need more support with them. And sometimes people don't. And it doesn't negate the diagnosis or medical model. It embraces that of if you feel like that works for you, great. Utilize it as a tool for your own wellness and your own growth and learning to get to a life that is whole for you. Um, But also, if you don't relate to that, great. We don't have to use diagnosis language. And neurodivergence framework is inclusive of people that have quote, typical brains as well. Personally, I think they're unicorns and don't exist, but you know, (laughs) uh, that's probably just some sort of bias of mostly making friends with people who are neurodivergent. But there are multiple different uh, vocabulary words that are important to know as well, where neurodivergence is talking about the variety of different ways our brains can exist and our minds can be. Uh, neurodivergent is diverging from the norm. A person that has di- has a brain that is not the same as neurotypical, which would be the, quote, normie brain as we would use in uh, 12-step programming as language. Um, and so under the neurodivergent umbrella, that would include Uh, people who identify uh, with 12-step programming as alcoholic or addict, uh, but also it would include people who are uh, uh, just having really bad days that are consistently making it hard for them to get out of bed and their brain isn't functioning the same way as somebody else's brain does. Um, It is really inclusive and it is really wholesome in the way that it honors everybody's individual lived experience and doesn't prescribe labels or this is how it has to be for anybody. Yeah, I think I've, and I've heard people talk more and more about um, that paradigm for a couple of years now. And seeing it incorporated into the skill development series, I think, was really, really interesting because people seem to really like it. Um, I think there was a lot of interest in learning more and wanting to see, like, maybe I fit into this. And there were some folks who were familiar with that paradigm a little bit. Um, so it was cool to see it presented in a space that was talking about mental health. I'm curious, there are kind of two questions that came up for me as you were talking, but I want to start with the first one, which is kind of how we look at ourselves as a profession which is, you know, we're certified peer specialists, which means typically that you have direct lived experience with mental health or substance use challenges and kind of neurodivergence, uh, the neurodivergent uh, paradigm kind of creates the space to say everybody has lived experience, right? So how, how does this fit into kind of what we're talking about when we're saying, I want to be certified? If somebody's saying neurodivergent, I'm not asking you to be the authority of like, this is lived experience and this isn't. But I hear this conversation coming up more and more that like, we should broaden lived experience to the point where it's almost, it covers everybody. And then, you know, what does it mean to be certified in this profession? How do you think all these pieces fit together? I think, Again, it's not necessarily an either or. (laughs) I'm real good at looking at the in-between. And um, for me, when I think about the way that the neurodivergence framework and paradigm 
relates to certified peer support, I just see it enhancing certified peer support where um, people listening in may not be familiar, but Texas has a really cool way of identifying who qualifies to be a peer supporter and who qualifies to get trained. It's more based on do you have a uh, life experience, and I forget the exact wording, but a life experience that had a major impact in your life. And usually, I, I think there's some wording relating it to it being around mental health or substance use or something, but it's really more focused on, did you have an experience that had a major impact in your life? And are you in recovery from that? And recovery in that sense doesn't mean that you're working towards abstinence or perfect mental health or never going into a psych hospital or anything like that. Uh, that it, The in recovery there means are you working on creating a life that you love, essentially, and working to make sure that you feel whole. And you don't actually have to feel whole at the time. I'm just, you know, that's, again, my wording of somebody else's words, and you can look it up. But it's really cool. And I think that that ties in really nicely with the neurodivergence framework and certification is have you had a big life experience that has impacted you and have you navigated that? And are you working towards getting to a better place in your life? Cool. Um, and certified peer support is really more focused on, in my opinion, training people on how to um, not cause harm. It's not necessarily saying that if I'm training you to be a peer supporter, you don't know how to support people. Most of the time, people know how to support people. It's more focused on, hey, how, in my opinion, how do we make sure that we're not causing harm unintentionally in these spaces? And how do we make sure that we're operating within the ethics of our profession and making sure that when we are in these spaces, we are prepared when a clinician comes up and asks, hey, how does this relate to, uh, you know, peer support or how is peer support different from a, a social worker or whatever? We're able to have these conversations about our profession less so this is how you support somebody. Um, and I think some of the certification trainings may not be in alignment with that, but I feel like that, to me, is the goal of a certification training and making sure that as a profession, we can be a true wholesome support for the people who work with us rather than uh, saying really stigmatizing things and not really knowing <laughs> or uh helping us learn how to not drift into the clinical space as much and making sure that we are aware of what's going on within us that may be implicit biases. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to explore that because I've heard that kind of phrasing before. I think there might be a couple states in New England that also use that specific language of like, have you experienced like a life impacting event um, that you know has, has impacted you to the point that you would feel comfortable taking this training and you've moved through some things. And I think it's a really interesting approach to kind of what's considered peer support, because to go back to what you talked about earlier, the idea of being able to provide peer support to somebody who doesn't have the exact same direct lived experience that you do, I've heard such resistance to that idea. Um, and and when I think about what peer support really is, it's it's leaning in to build you know genuine human connections through shared experiences, and that can be the emotions, right? I may not have the direct lived experience of you experiencing you know hearing voices or seeing visions but i do understand what it's like to feel distress because other people are making judgments and assumptions about 
how you should be navigating the world. And so I can connect with you in these feelings of kind of judgment and stigma and maybe shame and, and distress rather than the actual thing that you're maybe living through. And I think there's benefits and drawbacks to both. But I do think there is space for that kind of connection that's more based on just human experiences and emotions than necessarily like the exact same thing that you, you're going through. The other question that came up for me as you were talking was kind of this push and pull of like, as a workforce, how we really value our own lived experiences. You know, there are some folks who will say, my diagnoses are really meaningful to me. And then you have, you know, somebody else who's maybe saying, uh, all of my diagnoses are incorrect and I don't like them or find any value in them. You know, all these existing systems have caused harm to me. And we often see the tension between those two because they have a hard time hearing that somebody was harmed by the thing that benefited them. And I'm curious, you know, you talked about at the beginning to navigating through 12 step and then going into peer support. Kind of how did you learn to hear that? You know, what benefited me maybe caused harm to somebody else or what caused harm to me was very beneficial to someone else. And, and maybe even in the context of mental health of like, you know, this, this major depressive disorder diagnosis was really meaningful to me and somebody else saying this is weighing me down for my whole life. How do we balance all of that? I think that's hard for me to answer um, because I personally have always had more of a look look at the gray area view where nothing is exact. And so I, I guess I'm going to do a little tangent and then come back. But <laughs> if you've heard of the phrase black and white thinking... Um, which I've, I've kind of alluded to through this, looking at the gray and everything. But uh, if you think of the phrase black and white thinking, I've recently heard an idea that black and white thinking isn't necessarily what we think of for black and white thinking, uh, where m there's a common understanding that black and white thinking is, oh, do you like ice cream? Being able to answer yes or no. Um, but to me and what I've been hearing more so recently from other people is a different understanding of black and white thinking where black and white thinking is more of looking at the granular of, well, do you like ice cream? Yes, if it's mint chocolate chip. No, if it's sherbet, because that's not ice cream. But yes, if it's this, but no, if it's that. And having very specific black and white, right? But other people would call that in the gray. Sure. And so I think there's a different understanding of black and white or gray or things like that. But um, for me, it's either I look at the gray of the details or I look at the very specific black and white of, mm. yes, if it's mint chocolate chip, no, if it's sherbet, because that's not ice cream. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so having that kind of nuance in there is really important to me in these conversations. Um, and so with that tangent, I'm going to ask you to repeat your question so I can make sure that I'm answering it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing I'm going to do, it's ask you at 16 questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was curious to hear how you kind of grew into being able to find value in your own recovery pathway. Uh, you talked about 12 step programming while also recognizing that maybe other people have experienced harm in that space. Um, and so how did you learn to say this what has meaning and value to me and it may be harmed somebody else. And I can hold those two concepts together. 
Yes. And so with that black and white slash gray thinking (laughs) that I just talked about, um, going into 12-step programs, I always came into it from the thought process that I was more there for recovery from drugs than alcohol. Um, Because for some reason, when you're under the age of 18, or at least for me, when I was under the age of 18, uh, if I asked someone to buy me alcohol, they'd say, no, that's illegal. I can't do that. But if I asked them to uh, share their weed with me, they'd say, sure. I don't understand how that works. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) Uh, that that was my experience. And so I definitely had more experience on the substance use, not alcohol side, uh, where 12-step programs very distinctly separate those of alcohol and not alcohol substance use. Uh, but the program that I found most helpful was Alcoholics Anonymous. And they're very specific of this is about alcohol, not drugs. That is outside experiences. And so coming into it from that very early age of being under 18 and still not truly fitting into the program that was best benefiting me at the moment, I already had to make concessions. I already had to be in that space of this isn't a perfect fit. And I see it's causing harm to others who do identify as having more of a substance, not alcohol problem um, (laughs) than you know, alcohol problems. Uh, and I'm able to get benefit by, to me, switching out the word alcohol with whatever else I needed support with at that moment in the literature and in the conversations that we were having, but just use alcohol as, quote, the word uh, so that I could be accepted into the spaces. Um, and so I was very much in that middle ground myself where I was the person who was being harmed and helped at the same time. Um, and I think that has that had made it a lot easier for me personally to ex- experience and to understand others' experiences of, hey, this thing that has helped some people has harmed me. Um, and, but I think the most shocking one was when I was in a training with somebody who was a peer supporter, and they told they were sharing their experience of how abstinence had harmed them and how abstinence-based programming had harmed them. And I was 100% still in the 12-step mindset of recovery where abstinence is the only way and yeah, harm reduction exists, but the goal is abstinence, right? Um, (laughs) And uh, they completely blew my uh, understanding of recovery out of the water when they were talking about how uh, staying abstinence was was the thing that harmed them. And just sitting down and having that conversation of, okay, tell me more. Right. Tell me what that experience was like really gave me a new understanding of our profession even. Um, and I would encourage anybody that is having a hard time of understanding how a space in our peer support profession or how a space in the recovery movement or how people's experiences exist, sit down and ask them, would you tell me more? I'd love to hear. I may not understand, but I'd love to work towards understanding. And I find people in our profession are usually really excited to tell their stories. So (laughs) if you can find another peer supporter, usually that's great. Um, But I absolutely love listening to people's stories and part of why I'm a peer supporter. 
And I absolutely love hearing how other people have experienced life. And so getting to have that conversation with this person was such a gift and really was the way that the door opened for me to get those that professional understanding of other people's experiences uh, may have been hurtful from what I found helpful. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense, right? Lining it up with the peer values, like can we lean in with some curiosity? Can I approach from a place of neutrality? Am I really open to hearing what you have to say? Well, I also think a lot too about like how kind of what you're talking about, this idea of sometimes abstinence is actually harmful to people and how that applies in mental health spaces too with this idea of like, you know, zero suicide approaches or the expectation, the assumption that engaging in self-injurious behaviors is always harmful or something that needs to be stopped. And how people will sometimes make some space for like, well, there's moderation, you know, management on substance use side, but in the mental health side, like anytime you're engaging in self-harm, it needs to be stopped. Anytime you're having suicidal thoughts, it's a crisis. And there isn't a lot of that same space for like harm reduction approaches there. Have you seen that happening anywhere or kind of what what do you think that could look like? I think it's uh, something that is developing in the neurodivergence framework as well, um, where, oh, you're having a series of bad days. Okay. Do you want to do something about it? Instead of just assuming that they do um, or thinking about it as, okay, you're having this series of bad days. Well, what would make it a little bit better for you? And having a conversation on what that person wants. So for me, when I'm having a series of bad days, I have a really hard time showering. (laughs) That is one of my things. One, like one, I have sensory issues uh, with it of like the dry to wet, the wet to dry. I don't even like going swimming because of that. Like it is not fun and really overloading. And when I'm having that series of bad days, I do not want to take a shower, period. End of story. I will skip it for as long as possible. And so sometimes finding alternatives is the harm reduction that I need. Can I do a, like, baby wipe shower? Sure. Right? Can I do other things to take care of my hygiene in the way that I need to make sure that, A, I'm not getting sick, B, I am able to support what my body needs, C, I am not stinking when i go outside because <laughs> like, that makes me feel bad too yeah. uh, so <laughs> you know just having these kind of thought processes of okay it doesn't necessarily need to be we are quote fixing what we think the problem at hand is it is okay how do we support this person in achieving the goals that matter to them so for me a lot of times people would assume oh we need to get you into a shower yeah. What if it's a bath? What are all these other, quote, harm reduction measures that I could do, like taking that baby wipe, uh, you know, wash down or whatever, to take care of myself? And if I'm having trouble eating, my favorite thing is a toasted bagel with cream cheese. So you give me (laughs) one of those, I'm probably going to eat it. Uh, is it the most nutritious thing in the world? No, there's no veggies there. But if you give me a blueberry one, I think I'm being healthy. <laughs> well, and if you get the chive cream cheese, then right. <laughs> there's a vegetable there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree with you. Right. So like if, right, we're not necessarily looking for a solution. We're looking for like, 
what 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 do you want to do if anything and how do i support you in doing that with you know to your point with no expectation that after you've maybe done this baby wipe shower you'll feel better enough so you'll get in the shower properly um right like this is what we're going to do today and i have the opposite problem where i'm having a series of bad days and i'm like don't ever let me get out of the shower leave me in here so i prune and dry <laughs> like i just am like no this is my safe space <laughs> I'll give you half of my issue if you give me half of yours. <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get it to work. Well, uh, I've had such a good time talking with you, Jesse. Um, any final thoughts or anything else that you want to share before we wrap up? I No, I've, I so appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, and thank you for being a part of the skill development series. Uh, we will, uh, I'll talk to you later. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.